first, oh, we're going to go to Colossians 1, verse 15. Colossians 1, 15. So for all you faithful journal Bible users, we're not in Genesis, I'm sorry. A reading from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you, you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jake. All right, well, we're five sermons in to our series in Genesis. We're calling Right from the Start, and the reason we call it Right from the Start is because there's a lot of our life that we anchor truths to that are spoken of right from the start, in the very first chapter of Genesis and the very first book of Genesis, and so we are looking back to see how we should look forward. And look at the present. Today is maybe the first or potentially the second of a sort of mini-series inside of our larger series that has to do with anthropology, which is the study of man. And this sermon in particular is kind of a other side of the coin for the sermon that Daniel gave us last week on created male and female. So he gave us an excellent foundation of what is man? What is woman? What was God's intention when he made them? What is his intention for us as he made us? Colossians 1 here, this is recognized as a hymn by most... Amen. <laughs> recognized as a hymn by most theologians. And it's a song that may have been written by... Paul, or just may have been something that was in circulation in the church at the time, but whatever it was, Paul's using it here to point to the fact of the truth that Christ was involved in creation. He was there at the beginning. He is the firstborn of creation. He's the firstborn from the dead. The word firstborn there means that he's the inheritor of those things, but also that he is over those things and that he governs them. We also know that Jesus was involved in creation itself. So that's our anchor text for this sermon today, which is on transgenderism. And the reason we're talking about transgenderism is, one, because it's a really pertinent issue in today's culture. We need to know how to think about it. The world tells us one thing, and the devil tells us another thing, and some people feel feel very strongly about this in themselves, but how does God want us to consider this topic? And how are we to take it, the truth of it, and apply it into real life? So, I'm tackling this, this topic this morning, and the sermon we're going to call Transgenderism or a Better Way. I'm going to start with a pretty long introduction I'm going to try to give us some parameters and groundwork for how to think about gender. How we think about gender is at the crux of this topic. 
and the Bible and the world have some similarities in how we think about it, but also some very stark differences. So we're going to talk about that. And then I want to give us some pointers, some, some things to think about. How do we apply the truth that we see in Scripture to our, to our lives? So there'll be five points altogether, but they will be after a very long introduction. So for right now, focus on the introduction, and I'll give you the points as we get to them, all right? And to start off our introduction, I'm going to read a skit for us. I want to be a woman, says Stan. What? Offers Christian. I want to be a woman. From now on, I want you to call me Loretta. Christian. What? It's my right as a man. Now here Judith jumps in. But why do you want to be called Loretta, Stan? I want to have babies. Christian. You want to have babies? It's every man's right to have babies if he wants them. But you, don't, but you can't have babies. Don't you oppress me. I'm not oppressing you, Stan. You haven't got a womb. Where's the fetus going to gestate? You going to keep it in a box? At this moment, Stan bows his head disconsolately and in grief. Judas has an idea. Here, I've got an idea. Suppose we agree that you can't have babies, not having a womb, which is nobody's fault, but that you can have the right to have babies. And here we have a new character, our fourth person, SJ, jumps in. Good idea, Judith. We shall fight the oppressors for your right to have babies, brother, or uh, sister, sorry. What's the point in fighting for his right to have babies when you can't have babies? It's symbolic of our struggle against oppression. It's symbolic of his struggle against reality. This was a Monty Python skit that was first put out in 1979. And say that they were a little ahead of their time, huh? Now, the names have been modified to protect the identity of these individuals. But the fact that we might chuckle at this is, you know, it's, it's, it's to consider that this was funny in a, while well, the vestiges of a predominantly Christian culture were still very much a part of the world is one thing. But it's another thing to consider that this is how many people believe today. This is real. It's not real that a man can become a woman or that there's a woman trapped inside of a man's body, but it's very real that people believe this is true and that they believe it is true of them. And so in a sense, it's no laughing matter anymore. So because of the gravity of the topic, it's vitally important to define our terms, which is always important to do, but I'm going to start with, we believe that God is not only the maker and originator of all of creation, as we've seen through our Right from the Start series, but that he has written and accurately preserved a record of his word, and that in his word is all that pertains to life and godliness, for our life and our godliness. So we're going to start right in chapter 1. What does God say that gender is? Genesis 1.27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we see two separate individuals formed and made, built by God according to his specifications. And he had a plan in mind for that design, a big plan. He said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over it. Last week, Daniel helped us to see that there's a lot wrapped up in our understanding of what it means to be male and female or man and woman. For most of history, those two words were interchangeable. They meant the same thing. 
They referred to the whole being of a man or the whole being of a woman. Each having unique and distinct biological sex or physiology from the other. And unique and specific roles, behaviors, and performance from each other. So the Bible began and then maintained for the next 1,500-ish years of its authorship this view and understanding of what is man. It is a whole being made of two parts, body and soul. And those two things are in unity with one another in the sense that they're connected. One informs the other, the other informs the first. In recent history, actually going back a few hundred years, but much more notably in the last several decades, being a man began to mean something different than being a male in our culture. Today, there's a movement being pro propagated that advocates or rather insists that these words actually mean different things. Now, male has specifically to do with sex or physiology, and man has to do with your role, your behavior, or your performance. Specifically, male and sex has to do with, male has to do with sex and man has to do with gender. That's how culture has begun to think about those two words. They're not the same anymore. They mean something different. So what do they mean? When we encounter most of our culture presenting this idea, they're not coming from a biblical perspective. They're not using biblical terms or understanding. So what do they think? Well, as I looked for a good definition of gender on Google, which is a questionable place to go and look for definitions, I found the World Health Organization had one to offer. So this is what the World Health Organization says about gender. Gender refers to the characteristics of women and men. They are socially constructed. These include norms, behaviors, and roles associated with being a woman, man, boy or girl, and the relationships between them. So gender refers to characteristics of women and men that are socially constructed, having to do with norms, behaviors, and roles. Gender is hierarchical and produces inequalities that intersect with other social and economic inequalities. This is part of the definition of gender. Going down a little further, gender interacts with, but is different from sex, which refers to the different biological and sociological characteristics, such as chromosomes, hormones, and reproductive organs. Gender and sex are related, but different from gender identity. Gender identity refers to a person's deep felt, internal, and individual experience of gender, which may or may not correspond with the person's physiology or designated sex at birth. So to summarize that whole very big long definition, gender refers to the characteristics of being man or woman as defined by society but are not inherent attributes of a person's biological makeup. Gender is an oppressive component of society leading to inequality. A person's identity is self-determined based on their personal, internal, felt, or desired experience as part of the cultural construct and their biology. So why am I telling you what the World Health Organization thinks? Well, it's because this is what we encounter. This is their understanding. This is a very common understanding in our society today. I'm telling you this because there are basic assumptions that are being presented in this definition that I think are wrong. Here are those basic assumptions. Society determines what gender is, and it's not connected to biological sex. Here's another one. The social construct of gender is used to oppress individuals. And the third, the individual has the right to decide which gender they are based on their desires. We must disagree with this if we make Scripture our authority. Instead, I offer you that according to Scripture, God determines gender and that gender is integral with biological sex. Sin is the root of all oppression, not gender or social constructs. 
the individual may be confused or uncomfortable with their identity based on social constructs and may act in opposition to their God-given gender, but they cannot change it, no matter how hard they might want to. So this leads me to the definition of transgender. Transgender is society's term for someone who suffers from gender dysphoria or is in the process of transitioning, meaning that they are taking social, legal, medical, or surgical steps to better align their identity or their body with their desired self. Gender dysphoria is a psychological classification of someone who has a strong desire to be rid of one's primary and or secondary sex characteristics because of a marked incongruence with one's experienced or expressed gender. So simply put, someone who identifies as transgender has a strong desire not to be associated with the role, behaviors, or performance expected of their biological sex. This is real, and people really struggle with this. Probably a lot more people than we think. Probably not as many as most of media would have us believe, but more than we think. There's a number of different and complex reasons why someone might struggle with this, why they may be diagnosed as gender dysphoric. Here are a few of them. Some people struggle with this because they actually have physical or chemical imbalances in their brain or their body. They are different. There's a legitimate reason for this. Some people struggle with it because of trauma in their past. And the changing of their identity is a way of trying to protect themselves from that trauma or separate themselves from that trauma. A lot of adolescents struggle with it during puberty because their bodies are changing and developing. There's actual chemical imbalances going on. And it's scary! But studies have shown that 70 to 85% of people who struggle with gender dysphoria during adolescence, within a year or two after puberty is done, they agree with their biological sex. So to make radical changes and life choices based on a couple of years of difficult struggle, which has permanent ramifications, is foolish. The best advice to those people who are in that category is wait it out. Just wait it out. It's likely to change. But changes you make now can be irreversible. Others struggle with it because of the cultural moment that we're in. This is what friends are doing, or this is what people say is social, um, in society is cool. This is how you can be accepted, be relevant, be different. Some people are just looking for an identity because it's the thing to do. So regardless of why or who is struggling with the sin, or is struggling with, this, with the result of sin and with lostness and with the separation from good God, and his good plan. So regardless of any of those categories of why people might struggle with gender dysphoria, it's all related to one thing. We are all sinners. We live in a broken world with broken bodies and broken souls. And it's real, and those emotions are real, but it's because of sin. It's not because of gender. It's not because society has decided we're going to set up this thing to oppress people. It's because we're all sinners and we're affected by that sin. Last week, Daniel referred to this condition of being, sin, of, of being affected by sin as, being, as living east of Eden. And I want to be really clear here. Suffering is not a sin. It's a result of sin. But suffering is not sin. And I've listened to so many stories over the last several months in preparation for this. I've, I've talked with people who are directly impacted with this. By, by family members, by, by people who themselves struggle with this. This is a real thing. It's very complex. People are hurt, deeply hurt by this, on both sides. 
And I have a tremendous amount of empathy for anyone who is struggling with this particular sin or with the circumstances that have come into your life that cause you to believe that your gender is not safe or for whatever reason you reject God's good design for you. I have deep empathy. And, and I'll say that, pastorally speaking, if this is how you find yourself or there's someone in your life that finds themselves this way, this is not a thing to try to walk along by yourself in. We as a group of people, the church, need to be together in all areas of struggle, but this one, very much so. Don't feel that you must isolate yourself or segregate yourself off. This is sin just like any other sin is. And just like any other sin, we need each other to help one another walk alongside each other in this. So if this is true for anybody here, your elders want to know this to be able to help you and serve you and care for you. We don't want to know it because it's some like, ooh, juicy information. We want to know it because we, we, we want to care for you. So if you trust us with that, we want to know that. And if there's other people in this church who you trust with that, you should tell them. You should allow them to walk alongside you in that. All right, that, side, that aside. So while it is not sin to be afflicted with gender dysphoria, it is not sin to be afflicted with gender dysphoria, it is sin to pursue a transgender lifestyle. And regardless of why we struggle with it, God speaks very directly to the idea of practicing or presenting oneself as the opposite gender than you were made to be. Deuteronomy 22.5, Daniel read this for us last week. A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. In the New Testament, we see Paul say, Does not nature itself teach that if you are a man who wears long hair, it is a disgrace to him? The idea there is not that long hair in particular is so bad, but that the idea is if you are presenting yourself as a woman, that is bad. But nature says, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was right to insist that those who reject their bodies reject their existence before God, the Creator. So Scripture is very clear that it is a sin to present oneself as the opposite of what you were born as. And this is what Christians should believe. This is what Scripture teaches. Now, in the remainder of my time, I want to address four different personas. And we met them in the skit. Stan, SJ, Christian, and Judith. And so I'm going to present kind of an open letter to each of them addressing some of these things and these concerns that they have. So let's revisit who they are. Stan, we'll call him the oppressed. He's the one struggling with a deep desire that he, doesn't, he can't make sense of, doesn't seem to be fixable, and he feels misunderstood, and he's genuinely struggling. So that's Stan. Then there's Christian. Christian loves truth. He's firmly planted in reality and wants other people to live according to it. He believes there's hope in reality and that that's how we, we, we tackle hard things. And then there's Judith. She's an advocate. She's sympathetic and wants to care for Stan by validating him. Lastly, there's SJ. And he is a fighter against the oppressor. He doesn't necessarily care who he's fighting against or for what, he just doesn't want oppression in any way. So he will throw his life at that. And so this is where our points begin, if you're taking notes. Uh, the, the, five po- the five points that we have are, don't be transformed, sorry, don't be transitioned, be transformed. Second point is, have a head for truth, but a heart of compassion Third point is don't be taken captive. The fourth point, don't suppress the truth. And the fifth point is 
Set your mind on Christ. So point one, don't be transitioned, be transformed. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Dear Stan, I'm sorry that you are struggling with who God made you to be. Here's what God says about the way that he formed you. You were formed in, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me. So a couple of quick observations for Stan. Your inward parts were knitted together by God in the womb. Your soul may not sympathize with what the Lord has done, and you may not appreciate your circumstances, But I want to point out that you're alive. That in itself is a miracle. My father was born with a single ventricle in his heart. His doctors told his parents that he would not live to be a teenager. Yet he lived to be almost 50. He got married. He had children. He worked and served around the world in missions. And he had a place in some of the most prestigious, in the lives of some of the most prestigious heart doctors, in some of the most prestigious um, institutions for medicine in our country. Those men knew his name, and they knew Jesus because of that. My father was knit together by God to have that deformity. And God used that. God knows everything about you, Stan. Your frame, it's customized, and no one had anything to do with it except God. Your days were formed along with your being. He knows the plans that he has for you. So Stan, perhaps you have read this verse all your life, and you're very skeptical of it, and you still ask the question, but why me? I don't like this. It's uncomfortable. I'm struggling. Well, there is a passage of Scripture that I think speaks to this in a very encouraging way. John 9, the disciples and Jesus are walking along the way and they come upon a man who's sitting there begging. He's blind. And the the disciples ask ask Jesus, who sinned here, him or his parents, that he's born blind? Which goes to tell you the worldview that's there, right? The worldview is sin is, the sin of the individual or the sin of someone else is the reason why that they are suffering the way they're suffering. And Jesus says, no, no. It's not because he sinned or his parents, but that the mighty works of God may be manifested. As long as I'm in the world, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. So here we see a man in his own, made in, by Jesus in, as an image bearer of him, of God. He was made imperfect according to our standards. Yet it was so that his mighty, God's mighty works might be on display. Jesus used a blind man to demonstrate that he was the light of the world. He made this man and allowed this man to live for 40 years without sight so that he could be an object lesson of God's power and glory. So Stan, how have you been made in a way that allows you to be a trophy of God's glory and a testament to his grace. One sister in our congregation put it this way, your gender is your job description. And if you struggle with that, my encouragement is to you to consider that this is how you were formed to be. And just like the psalmist or any of the other examples of mental illness or struggle that are in the Bible, Job, many of the psalmists, Nebuchadnezzar, Jesus, 
Jesus suffered from such anxiety that he sweat blood before the crucifixion. Recognize that this is a part of who you are and who you are designed to be. So the question then becomes to stand, what do you do with your feelings? Because they're real. What do you do with them? Well, remember that our emotions are more like gauges than guides. In his book, Don't Follow Your Heart, John Bloom presents a premise that basically while all human emotions are real, they are not accurate. And they're certainly not trustworthy. When all definitions of transgender set up the definition that reality of oneself is one's emotions loosely connected to culture or experience, well, Scripture has something to say about that as well. Jeremiah 17, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He will be like a shrub in the desert, and he won't see good. He shall dwell in the parched lands of the wilderness, uninhabited lands of salt. And then it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? So don't trust your heart or your emotions, Stan. Renew your mind by setting your mind on Christ and trusting his good design, and you will be transformed. Jim talked about the fact that he and Colleen were made new creations when they gave their life to Christ. It's been 30 years. Jim's told me this story a few times. He wanted nothing to do with God. He only showed up because he knew if he didn't come to church on Sunday, the first Sunday, he'd never go to church again. And his brother said, you need to do it. So he did it. And then Scott Monroe was there and stopped him from leaving. And before too long, Jim realized the way that I was going was not a good way. My way is not the best way. Christ's way is the best way. And he was transformed. So, Stan... Don't trust your feelings. Be transformed. Don't transition. So point two, have a head for truth, but a heart of compassion. 1 Corinthians 16 says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. So here we're talking to Christian Christian, I realize that you love the truth. You seek it. You study it. You build your life upon it. You are careful. And it's frustrating when you constantly bump up against people like Stan who are determined to live by feelings and emotions or people like Judith who intentionally mislead people for their validation or her own or SJ who's opposed to truth and to God. Christian, you have, tr- you have truth and are strong But my question is, have you forgotten the mercy and love of Christ in your own life? I realize that personal experiences are overwhelming. It's very difficult to sit in front of someone who passionately believes with every fiber of their being that they are in fact misgendered. Beyond that, to know what it is to agree with, to know that if you agree with them, if you don't agree with them, sorry, They may hate you and slander you, and perhaps you may lose status or position or jobs or scholarships or, at the very least, friendships. I want you to realize that this is more common struggle than you probably give credit for, but the movement is not as far-reaching as you assume it might be. It's also not just out there, Christian. This affects people in your church, and I'm sure some level of varying conviction about this is also present in your church among your brothers and sisters. We must stand firm in Christ, not with tolerance and niceness like Judith, or with the unrighteous anger of SJ, but in the true love of our Redeemer who is making all things new. What do we do when someone is convinced they are misgendered and are right in front of you with your fully expressing themselves with all the conviction they can muster? What can you do to help them? Three things. First off, we must be humble. Don't be self-righteous. Or in any way give the tone of anger. Righteous anger 
was only seen by Jesus when he was rebuking the religious institutions and leaders for their betrayal of their responsibility as shepherds. He demonstrated compassion and patience toward those who were sick and dying. The church has done more harm than good with its attempts to be anti-social justice warriors. We speak truth, but we do it in love. Second, remember that these are people just like you. They have thoughts, ideas, hurts, confusions, and experiences that are different from ours. That doesn't mean that you must affirm their decision to sin, but you should be willing to show compassion for their hurt or confusion. For some reason, they have discomfort or distrust of who they are. That's real, and that's something you can listen to and help care for. Maybe it's as simple as they are trying to be noticed or valued as an individual, and they feel like this is the way. Maybe they are reacting to trauma in their life or deep hurt, or maybe they actually have a psychological or physiological condition that brings confusion. You can have a heart of compassion without compromising your head for truth. Third, turn the other cheek and love your enemy, but don't compromise the truth. I'm not saying that we should set up the category of transgender people as our enemies, but that if they treat you as an enemy, don't react in kind. Don't be self-righteous. Always be prepared instead to give a defense to anyone who asks for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your, your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good than, it, than to suffer for doing evil. So, Christian, don't let your heart for truth, your head for truth, compromise your heart of compassion. Number three, don't be taken captive. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. That's Colossians 2.8. This is to Judith. Judith, I can appreciate that you want to help people. You want to help the hurting and stand up against inequality and oppression. You aren't as committed as Christian. You aren't, sorry, you aren't as committed as SJ, but you, aren't, you also don't care for truth like a Christian does. You just want people to be happy. Here's the thing with truth, though. It means true based on reality and fact. If we don't have a fixed point for reality, we have no truth. We can't trust anything. You know that there are programs where you can buy a square foot of Scottish land and be called a lord or lady of Scotland. Apparently, they have that for stars, too. And so for 45 bucks, you can own a piece of the heavens with a certificate and everything. But if we decide that our truth claims are like these online star programs, you'll make someone feel good because they're validated. They have a certificate that says they own their own star. And that's great until they try to navigate by it. That thing's going to take them in circles every single night. So when Paul tells the church not to be taken captive or literally taken off as plunder by philosophy and empty deceit, that's according to human tradition or elemental spirits and not according to Christ, he's making the claim that Christ is the only true, trustworthy reference for reality. And what Jesus said about himself is that he is the way, he's the truth, he's the life. Lots of other religious leaders and prophets have said, there's a way, there's a truth, there's a life, but none of them have ever claimed to be those things. That's radically different. And Jesus did make the claim. The very first question that was ever asked in the Bible is, did God actually say? Which led to the first lie. No, 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 no. God didn't mean that. He just knows you're going to be like him and he's threatened. Which led to the first doubt and lack of trust. Does God really have my best interest at heart? Or is he holding out on me? From that point on, man's 
default position was to distrust God and to trust himself. Judith, don't be an advocate of doubt and deception. You can actually help with truth. Can a woman really be trapped in a man's body? Well, in his article, Body, Soul, and Gender Identity, thinking theologically about the human constitution, a man named Robert S. Smith presented a biblical view of human constitution, how we're made, that he called holistic dualism. This is going to get technical. I'm going to read it slowly. It's on the screen, I think, I hope, and I'll explain it. But it's really good. The article was excellent. It was very complicated. Here's the basic question. How does an understanding of a human constitution that is two parts in one body help us assess what might be called spiritual gender identity theory or the claim that a person can have the spirit of one soul, the spirit or soul of one sex in the body of another. So this is what he says. The whole of scriptural presentation on anthropology and how men are made leaves no room for a concept of human beings as composed of two separate entities joined together in uneasy alliance. The reason for this is that the body and soul, although distinct, okay, good, although distinct, interpenetrate one another. We are just as much ensouled bodies as we are embodied souls. As a consequence, biological processes are not just functions of the body as distinct from the soul or spirit, and mental and spiritual capacities aren't seated exclusively in the soul or spirit. All capacities and functions belong to the human body, to the human being as a whole fleshly spiritual totality. So in light of this, a discrepancy between the perceiving mind and the existing body is incompatible with Christian anthropology, and so is any justification built on it. This does not mean denying that the deep-seated patterns of feeling and experience involved in gender dysphoria are themselves bodily, for all mental states are necessarily bodily also. But it does mean that transgender individuals are not experiencing an ontological disintegration, even if they perceive themselves to be. Otherwise put, and this is the part to really, really remember, gender incongruence, whatever factors may have given rise to it in any particular case, is not an experience of ontological misalignment, but of epistemological misidentification. In short, there is no mismatch between the body and the soul. It doesn't deny that there can be feelings of that that are genuine, but it's saying that it can't be possible. So, Judith, maybe you want a professional in the field to say this, not just a theologian. So Paul McHugh, who's the University Distinguished Professor of Psychiatry at Johns Hopkins, and one of the most esteemed psychiatrists of our time, says this about gender dysphoria. In fact, gender dysphoria, the official psychiatric term for feeling oneself to be in the opposite sex, be belongs in the family of similar disorders, assumption, disor disordered assumptions about the body, such as anorexic, anorexia and body dysmorphic disorder. Its treatment should not be directed at the body as with surgery and hormones any more than one treats obesity-fearing anorexic patients with liposuction. The treatment should strive to correct the false, problematic nature of the assumption and to resolve the psychosocial conflicts provoking it. Transgender men do not become women, nor do transgender women become men. All become feminized men or masculinized women, counterfeits or impersonators of the sex with which they identify. So Judith, if you really want the oppressed person to trust you, and you really want to help them, the ultimate solution is to accept God's design for their life and trust him to have their good in mind. This is the only way to help the emotional suffering of someone struggling with gender dysphoria. All right, point four. Don't suppress the truth. 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So here is our open letter to SJ. The warrior against the oppressor. SJ, I wouldn't be doing my job as a preacher if I didn't tell you that the Lord has made it very clear what will happen to anyone who chooses to disregard his word. Scripture pulls no punches as it describes what has happened and what will happen to men if we suppress the truth. Romans 1, I'm going to just hit a couple of particular spots. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools." and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves, exchanging the truth about God for a lie and worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions For their women exchanged their natural relations for those who are contrary to nature, and the men gave up their natural relations with women and were consumed in passion with each other. Men committing shameless acts with men, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, They not only did them, but gave approval for those who practiced them. So the recurring phrase throughout that text is, God gave them up. God will turn us over to what we pursue. And that is a terrible, terrible fate. Because the best that we can muster is broken. And as it's described here, full of unrighteousness and evil and covetousness and malice, envy, strife, deceit, even the pagans don't want those attributes. But that is what God will hand us over to if we continue and repeatedly live contradictory to what he has told us is good and right and true. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis vividly describes how Romans 1 works itself out in the lives of those who reject God. This is what he says. People often think of Christian morality as a kind of bargain in which God says, if you keep a lot of rules, I'll reward you. And if you don't, I'll do the other thing. I do not think this is the best way of looking at it. I would much rather say that every time you you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you the part of you that chooses, into something a little different from what it was before. And taking your life as a whole, with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature. Either into a creature that is in harmony with God, with creatures, with other creatures, and with itself, or into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God, and with its fellow creatures, and with itself. Each of us, as each moment is progressing to one or the other state, with every choice we make, we are making it easier for ourselves to be conformed to Christ or to be conformed to the world, to be transformed to Christ, to be conformed to the world. However, SJ, there is always hope in Jesus. So repent from rejecting the one true God, lest he allow you what you really say that you think you want, which will destroy you. Last point. Set your mind on Christ. So we set up the sermon as transgenderism or a better way. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are below. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all 
and in all. Now this is to Stan, to Christian, to Judith, and to SJ, and to all of us. As we live east of Eden, afflicted by broken bodies and by broken minds, struggling with who we think we are or who we want to be, remember this. God has formed us and crafted us in his image. He has designed us with intentionality and with unique purpose. We can't always understand why hard things happen, but we can trust God. He demonstrated his love for mankind by sending his son to suffer with us and for us. Sin is our fault. Adam and Eve gave us an inheritance of death, and we own that inheritance in our flesh and our minds. That desire to live according to our own standards to suppress the truth, to conform to the world, and to be ourselves, to make ourselves in our own image. Will, you can bring the team up. Christ invites us to bring our struggles, our hurts, our traumas, our confusion to him. And he asks in turn only to trust us with those things, trust him with those things, and to obey him. He invites us to put to death our flesh and evil ways that only bring pain and death. He invites us to become members of his inheritance and to take his life according to his way, which is truth. Lay your own identities aside, your nationality, your political views, your culture, your ethnicity, your gender, Those things don't match the glory of identity with Christ. Life with Christ brings its own set of struggles. But identifying with him brings true rest and true peace forever.